our own heart. The young mom comes into the room and the smile on her face is quickly replaced with the look of dismay. And that quickly turns to the face of wrath. Those new plants that she had spent hours on replanting into perfect, pretty pots are now scattered all around the floor. Black dirt mixed with white carpeting. Two small children go running out of the room, leaving a trail of dirty footprints behind. And chasing them is a dog with flowers wedged between his collar and its fur. Later on, after the anger has run its course, and she thinks back, and she kind of confesses, she says, I thought I was such a laid-back person before I had kids. I just don't know what happened. (laughs) Down the street, in the greenhouse, childless mischief has been replaced with outright teenage rebellion. Two more years, she says to herself. Just hang on for two more years. A single mom lives down at the end of the street. And she gets home in time, just in time, to make dinner for these hungry appetites. And these high-energy kids collide with her low-energy body. And she feels the weight of carrying everything. In the Bible, David is called a man after God's own heart. And I just love the way that sounds. A man after God's own heart. Heart. And I believe that God is looking for mothers after his own heart as well. Do you think that any of these three women felt like they were mothers after God's own heart? And if you're a mother, do you feel like you're a mother after God's own heart? This morning we want to look at it. We're going to find out what it looks like to be a mother after God's own heart. And so I want to pray uh, just before we start here. Father God, we come before you and we just thank you, Lord. We just thank you for your love, Lord. We thank you for mothers. And we realize, Lord, that mothers are made in your own image. To be a mother is to reflect you and to reflect your love and your glory and your kindness and your compassion and your love. So Lord, we just pray that you'll help us this morning as we go through. And we know inherently, Lord, that there will be a sense of guilt that comes with this message just listening to it. A feeling that we just can't quite measure up. So Lord, I just pray that you will address that this morning, Lord. And let us see your love and your forgiveness and your kindness. And let us see that it's not about us, but it's about you, Lord. So be with us this morning. Holy Spirit, I just pray, Lord, that you will reach sensitive hearts and sensitive consciences, and sensitive minds, Lord. And be with us this morning, Lord, as we open this up and we look at it, Lord. So not only will we have mothers who are after God's own heart, but we'll have uh, men and women and uh, children, Lord, who are after your own heart. I pray this this morning. Amen. So, what is God after? What does God want in a mother, a mother who's after God's own heart? The number one thing that God is after is he's after your own heart. God wants your heart. See, our lives are full of things that seek our attention. And our world is full of these things that draw our 
desires away from God. And most of these things are legitimate. They're part of what God has called you to do, especially if your children are still young. Right? Many of these things feel like they're fires that need to be put out. Hopefully, that's literal. Hopefully it's not literal. Sometimes it is that there are actually fires to be put out. But this is the way it feels like. And these fires draw us away from God. They pull on our heart and they pull away. You know, one of the great promises in the Bible is that we'll get a new heart. We have an overhead for this. Look at this. This is Ezekiel chapter 36. And he says this. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So what does this look like? What, what kind of a heart is he after? What is this new heart that he's going to give us? What is it filled with and what is it made of? God wants hearts that are humble. That humble themselves before God. He tells us that we're to clothe ourselves in humility because He opposes the proud, but He gives us grace to the humble. And God wants hearts that are holy. He says, I am holy. Be like Me. Be holy because I am holy. And God wants hearts that recognize that they are weak. God wants hearts that recognize that they are weak. And they can't do it on their own. They can't do it by themselves. But they need God. You know, the Apostle Paul, he's feeling weak. He's feeling overcome. He's feeling overwhelmed. And he cries out to God. And God says to him, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, God wants mothers who love Him with all their hearts, with all their souls, with all their mind, with all their strength. God is after mothers whose heart is after Him. Who have hearts that love Him. Who have hearts that want to obey Him. Who have hearts that want to surrender all to Him. Who say, all to you, I surrender. So that's what God's after. God's after your heart. That's what this heart looks like. So the question is, how does a mother, after God's own heart, live day by day? How does she do this? What does it look like when she interacts with her kids day after day after day? In just the mundane, routine things and in the crisis kind of situations, what does that look like? So there's two different ways that we deal with kids. two different ways that we deal with life, really. Um, And it's both reactively and proactively. So reactively is just how we react. How do we react to life? How do we react to these situations that we're not ready for? These things that just happen. We don't plan it at all. That's kind of like reflexes, right? You're sitting on the the couch next to the use, the coffee table on top of the coffee table's lamp, on the floor reaching up as a toddler, right? They whack over the lamp. The lamp goes down. You just happen, just reflexes. You go out to try to grab the lamp before it's either the child or the floor. Those are the reactions. That's how we just kind of react. The other one's the proactive thing. And these are the intentional, thought out. How do I train my child? How do I teach my child? 
How do I work with my child? These are these proactive things. So first of all, we want to look at the reactive things first. The reason we want to do this is it just seems like most of our life is reactive, right? No matter how much we try to plan, it just seems like so much of it is, is reaction. So I want to spend uh, the next time looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14. If you've never memorized Scripture, this is an excellent, excellent one just to memorize. Because these, uh, Paul gives us these different categories for what people are like and for how we deal with, with different people. And in this case, we're going to look at it as, as uh, kids. So he says this, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. When it comes to reacting to your children, these categories are very, very helpful. Because sometimes your kids are going to be unruly. Sometimes they're going to be faint-hearted. Sometimes they're going to be weak. And every situation calls for a different response on our part. And if you kind of understand what these three different things are, it's just helpful as you walk through your day. So when they're unruly, that means that they're outright disobedient. They're doing you know, what they shouldn't be doing. And Paul says we're to admonish them. Admonish means to warn them or to reprimand them. So sometimes an unruly child needs to be warned. And that's enough. You can talk to the child. You can warn the child and the child will listen to you. But sometimes it's not enough. And they continue to do it. And so with this monitoring part comes the part of discipline where we need to discipline our children. God clearly says that he disciplines those that he loves. And those that he hates, he doesn't discipline. But it's just the ones that he loves because he wants to bring them back and he wants to correct them. And so if your child is acting unruly and you warn him or her and they listen... Or, if you discipline your child, and your child then listens, Scripture says this is a wise person. If you read Proverbs, they go through the wise and the foolish person. The wise person is the one who takes the warning, or who takes the discipline, and they learn from it. The foolish person is the one who doesn't at all. It never says that the child is perfect and makes no mistakes. But it says that they learn from their mistakes. And so, um, God calls us during these times of unruliness where the, chi- where the children are acting up to be patient. He says to be patient during this time. This is one of the hardest times of all to be patient. And you know how come that is? It's because we take this personal. We take this as a personal attack on us. All I do for you, and this is the thanks that I get? How dare you do this to me? Those are the attitudes that we have. That's what comes up into our heart, right? But see, the disobedience appears to be against us, but it's really rebellion towards God. Because what does David say when he confesses? He sins against Bathsheba and he sins against Uriah. And he confesses to God, and we have this in Psalms. And he says, against you... And you only, O Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He says this not because he didn't sin against Bathsheba or Uriah, but that the sin against others is because he rebelled against God. God gave commandments. David didn't follow them. He did the exact opposite. And now people are hurt because of it. 
sin always affects other people. And in this situation, you are the other person who's being affected. But it's sin against God that is taking place. So it's important during these times to remember that God not only works on your children through you, but God works on you through your children. And He's making us all holy. And He's teaching all of us these things. And He's sanctifying us all. And so we sanctify our children, or God sanctifies our children through us. God sanctifies us through our children. And so God tells us, be patient with them. Help them to see the sin. Help them to confess their sins so that they might be forgiven by me. So, the next category, that's the unruly child. The next category, and all children are all three at one time. There's actually a fourth category we're going to look at later. But the next one is faint-hearted. This is one of the times when your child feels afraid or anxious or overwhelmed or insecure or discouraged. And God says this is the time to come alongside of them, to listen to them, to be gentle and to encourage them. And God tells us, have patience when they're afraid. Have patience when they're weak or when they're um, uh, anxious, overwhelmed. Have patience in the face of insecurity. Have patience during this time. I remember when I was really little, there was this playground. And it was full of all the things that kids liked. There were monkey bars, and there were teeter-totters, and there was swing sets. And the kids would get under the swing set, and they would, you know how they like keep going faster and faster and faster? At the very, very height, they jump, they jump off the swing, and they put that whole physics of the pendulum to the test to see if that really, that energy is just going to keep on going. You know, and they, and, they, and they get on the swing sets, and they get on the teeter-totters, and this playground is full of these kids, and they're doing all these, all these things. At the edge of the playground, towering above everything else, was the giant slide. This thing cast shadows on the swing set. It cast shadows on the teeter-totters. It was the pinnacle of the playground. And on top of this thing, you could look down and you could see the whole playground. If you looked at the right angle, this giant slide blocked out the sun itself. This is how big this, this was. This was to me as a kid. <laughs> to get to the top of this thing, they had a completely vertical ladder. It wasn't one like this that you could walk up. It was completely vertical. And you had to climb up rung after rung after rung to get there. And they were rungs. They weren't steps. They were just like one-inch galvanized tubes that someone had welded together to make the ladder to get to the top of this slide. And so I had never, ever gotten to the top of that slide. But I knew that when you get up there, you could just see the whole world. But I was afraid of falling off and plummeting down and landing on the hard blacktop below in a day where they probably didn't care too much about the safety of children or <laughs> didn't have that knowledge of sand and bark mulch that we do now. And it's funny because whenever you surveyed the playground, there was always that one kid in the cast, wasn't he? Just sitting off there, this dire warning of the danger to come. <laughs> so we went there. Today was the day that I was going to climb up this ladder. 
And so I get there. And we have this babysitter who's with us. And I go to the first rung and I climb up. I go to the second rung and I climb up. I go to the third rung and I climb up. Pretty soon, I'm like three quarters of the way up. I can see the top. I can see the platform. And I make the fatal mistake of looking down. (laughs) And my knees lock. And my heart races. And my face pales. And I begin to panic. The babysitter who was with us had never heard the words patient or gentleness or compassion. She may have heard kindness. I'm not quite sure. I assume she heard that, but I didn't didn't think it. She knew other words. And she had a different way of motivating scared kids than that gentle encouraging coming alongside like that. And needless to say, it wasn't effective. If it was, I would have long forgotten about it. I wouldn't be telling you this story this morning, but it wasn't effective at all. So what must have been like a half an hour of me going up and down this metal ladder and the volume of her voice going up and down the decibel ladder, her patience finally wore out. They just plain gave out. And we were done for the day. And it would be another year and it would be another summer before I ever conquered that slide. But what does God want us to do with our anxious frightened, insecure, faint-hearted children? Does he want us to be like that babysitter? Or does he want us to be like himself? He says this. We have an overhyped slide for this. One of my favorite verses, Isaiah 66.13. God wants to comfort the Israelites. He wants them to know his comfort. He says, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. As one whom his mother comforts, I will comfort you. This is how we come alongside our faint-hearted children. Faint-hearted might be temporary. Faint-hearted might be a way of life for them. But this is what God says, and this is how we come alongside of these kids. And he wants you to bring the true hope that is only found in him during these times. Let them know that God will never leave them. And that God will never abandon them. He will never forsake them. Right? Help them to see God so that they will know peace like a river. And their hearts will be comforted. And they will rejoice in God as they learn to lean on God. The third category that Paul talks about is the weak. And this is different than the other two. Your child may be weak in certain areas. He may be weak at certain times. They plain may not have the ability to do something. In this case, the call is to help them. It is not to become irritated or frustrated or angry. They need help, not judgment. See, there's a difference between not doing something because you're unruly. Those kids can do it, but because of their stubbornness or their pride, they just plain won't do it. There's something different between the child who's too afraid to do something, who needs to be encouraged. This is a person who doesn't have the ability. They are too weak. And so what does God tell us to do? He says, help the weak. Help the weak. This weakness can be temporary. For some, this weakness lasts a lifetime. They're handicapped now, and they always will be. This help that you give will be continually. Listen to David Paulson. Uh, We have an overhead for this. It's actually two. Um, 
wonderful, wonderful. Just listen to this. He says, sometimes with the weak, the greatest sanctification in their own occur in those who show the care. Because sufferers of weakness don't and can't change much. This is part of why our vision for sanctification must be corporate and not only individually. The weaker and the less presentable members of the body get greater honor, attention, and protection, as 1 Corinthians puts it. We grow up together. What do we do? We help or hold on to the weak. We take it literally. Don't ever let go of people whose capacities are limited. They may need ongoing assistance. They need protection because they're easily victimized. They need help because they're weak. They cannot do life by themselves. They might not even be able to ask for help. Take the initiative to keep on helping those who are limited and vulnerable. And listen to this. Love can do no less. Love can do no less. Your child may be weak for a short time. Your child may be weak for a lifetime. If you are part of this body, there's going to be people in here whose children are weak temporarily or permanently. What less can love do but to reach out and to help them? As we grow as a body, as this is a corporate sanctification and not each individual living their life on their own, we come together and we help the weak. There's a fourth category. And that's the child who's doing well, who's thriving. And we see God working in their lives. This is the time that we are to make it obvious that we are happy for them and about them. And that we are proud of them. And that we love them. We need to let them know where we see God working in their lives. If little Billy gives a piece of candy to his sister, we let him know This is what God is like. This is what kindness is like. This is what generosity is like. This is what it means to think of someone else above yourself. This is what it means to love your neighbor like yourself. And we encourage that. And we should make that practice with everyone. We as a church should be doing this to each other always. If we see God working in someone's life, if you see God working in someone's life, let them know it. Let them see it. I see God here. I see God working in your life. This is the evidence of God's grace that's in your life. I can see it. It's right there. So, moving on. What does a mother, after God's own heart, do proactively? So that was kind of the reactively thing. Right? But now there's the proactive side. We have the entire Bible that shows us what we do proactively. And so... I just want to take out a couple of things just to look at. Just these few things. Uh, Number one, a mother after God's own heart prays for her children. Jesus tells us that we should always pray and not to lose heart. Your kids will go through so much. They face temptation every single day of their life. They are being informed into what they will become. What they are now is not what they will become. Right? They are saplings now. But one day they will be trees. And they're being formed now. And we have this part, so pray for your children as they're being formed. And pray for their salvation. Realize that each person, each child needs to repent of their own. They cannot get to heaven on your faith. They need to see God on their own. They need to see their sin. They need to repent. They need to fall down and ask for forgiveness for God on their own. So pray for your child already. 
What else does the mother after God's own heart do? God's own heart do? <laughs> she teaches them about God. She teaches them about character. She teaches them how to live a holy life. She teaches them the love of Christ and His forgiveness and His love and His grace. When God looks at teaching our children, He says this is beautiful in His sight. Proverbs 1, 8, 9. I'm not sure if we have an overhead for that. I don't remember, but it says this. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instructions, and forsake not your mother's teaching." For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. He's saying that's jewelry. He says, don't forsake your mother's teaching. It's like jewelry. It's valuable. It's beautiful. It's precious. It's an amazing thing. And so we teach our children these things about God so that they will know. What else kind of goes right alongside that? is she urges her kids to work in a, walk in a manner that's worthy of God. Walk in a manner that's worthy of their calling so that they will be fully pleasing to God. So that they will bear fruit in what they do. We can see the fruit in their lives. And so that they will increase in the knowledge of God. And so she urges them on. She spurs them on. She encourages them. She tries to do this to get her kids to do this. Finally, one more thing. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, 7-8. to Again, one of my favorite passages. Paul is talking to the Thessalonians and he's trying to describe what they're like. What was their ministry like? He's like, this is what we did. He says, we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you become very dear to us. One of the things that a mother who's after God's own heart does is she shares her own self. She shares her own life. She shares her own being. It's who she is. And the kids come in and she shares her life. She becomes a part of them and they become a part of her. And this is done through so many ways. Uh, one of them is just listening to the kids. Just listening. Hearing the stories. Hearing their adventures. Hearing their tales. Hearing what happened to them during the day or what happened to them at school or what happened afterwards or what happened to their friends or the movie that they watched or the book that they read but just to enter in and just to share your life and you'll find too as you just do this you'll start to understand things that you've never even heard of before so uh you know my son is into disc golf and Mickey's like disc what <laughs> it's like what is it? it's like it's like frisbee golf right and so she knows all the rules she knows all the courses she knows all the terms she knows all these things because she entered in and she shared her life and she shared his life and they share this together. Paul's trying to tell the Thessalonians, this is what our ministry was like. We not only shared the Gospel of God, we shared our very selves with you. Like a mother would. This is the only way you could do it. Like a mother who's gentle with her child. We not only tell you God, but we shared our very lives. It's the best way, the only way, when Paul's trying to tell them, this is what we did. And this is what a mother after God's own heart does, shares her very life. So after listening to this, there's always both that encouragement and there's that kind of, 
Okay, well, I guess it's time to look in the mirror. <laughs> kind of a thing. So the question becomes, what happens if you don't feel like you're a mother after God's own heart? When you look and see what you are, when you see what you are not, when you see your shortcomings, where you see where you've just fallen short, see, it's hard. And we feel guilty. And as a parent, it's impossible to not feel guilt. I think those things just go hand in hand. If you're a parent, to be a parent is to know guilt. It just seems like it, right? We're guilty for the things we do. We're guilty for the things that we don't do. So I want to look at this, and I'm looking at it two ways. Number one, I, find, I want to look at what are some of the reasons why we feel this way, and then what are some of the solutions? What do we do when we're faced with this? So what are some of the reasons for feeling this way? Number one, it's the enemy's plan. It's the enemy's plan for you to feel this way. Right? The enemy wants you to feel guilty. The enemy wants you to feel hopeless. The enemy wants you to feel like you're a failure. The enemy wants you to feel like everyone is watching you and everyone is judging you. Because if you do this, you take your eyes off of God. And you put them on yourselves. And the enemy can use true guilt or he can use false guilt. There is a true guilt where we go to God and we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness. And he will use that. And there's a false guilt where we take this responsibility that isn't ours. We feel guilt for things that aren't our fault. And he uses that too. But he doesn't take that guilt and bring it to, bring it to Christ at the foot of the cross and ask for forgiveness. He uses that you to stop right where you are and to do this little spiral down and down and down and down. What are some of the other reasons? Selfishness. Right? Selfishness is another reason. Sometimes we're just plain selfish. We want what we want. And we don't get it. Others feel it. This leads us to the next, which is anger, bitterness, short-temperedness. Right? We don't have time for these problems. We don't have time for all these questions. We don't have time for backtalk right now. We just can't deal with this right now. Sometimes it's because we're just anxious. Right? We take on more responsibilities than ours. We feel like we have to organize every area of our kids' lives. It's called helicopter parenting now. But we, we feel like if anything goes wrong in this child's life, it's our fault. And we need to make sure that they do well in everything. They need to do well in school. They can never fail. They must be kept safe at all times. And if anything happens to them, if they don't do well, whether it's scholastically or physically or emotionally or spiritually, we feel like it's all our fault. We feel like we're failures and we take this on always. There's also some situations which are difficult in a unique way. They're harder than the rest. One of them is being a single mom. Being a single mom, you have to do everything. Not only do you do the mom part, but you do the dad part, and you do the financial provider part, and you do the home fix-it man part, and you do everything, and you have to do it alone. You will certainly be tempted to feel like you're not doing a good job. Even if you're the best parent in the world, those temptations will be there, and you will feel that way. Another difficult situation, if you're a mom 
and you're married to a disinterested husband. A husband who takes a little interest in the kids, who takes little parts in their life, who doesn't really get involved at all. And you're going to feel at times that way because you're the only one that's doing it. And you're going to feel alone. You're the only one who's doing this parenting. So that temptation will be there. Another difficult situation is if you have a child who simply refuses to listen to anything that you say, to anything that your spouse says, to anything that you do. If you have a child who's constantly angry and disobedient and defiant no matter what you say, the temptation to feel this way is so great. Listen to Paul Tripp on this. He says this. We have an overhead. Here it is. It is hard to admit that you have an angry teen. We struggle with reputation, with pride. We want to be esteemed and respected by others. We want to project a successful reputation and image. To admit that you have an angry teen suggests that you are doing something wrong. It suggests that somehow you are inadequate and that you are a failure as a parent. But anger is an issue of the heart. You will never control the heart of your teenager. You cannot, change, you cannot create the change that needs to take place. I'm not saying you can't do anything, but the change that needs to take place is a change that you cannot create within your own power. You cannot do by human force what only the grace of God can accomplish. You cannot do by human force what only the grace of God can accomplish. And so with these teens, we prayer is all the more. And any mom who's walked through this knows that they walk in prayer daily on this. And they ask other people in prayer daily on this. Because it's that new heart that we talked about earlier that God promises a new heart. And He says, when I give you that new heart, I'm going to put my spirit in there. And it's then when we change. It's then when the child changes. It's then when that anger is replaced with love and with peace. But it's nothing we can do. It's something that God has to do. So what do you do now after you've examined your life? What if you look down and you say, you know what? I'm not a mother after God's own heart. If we are honest with ourselves, completely and totally honest, we will find that there is no one no one at all by themselves who is a mother after God's own heart. There are none. There is no mother who's just after God's own heart. Why? Because Scripture says all have sinned. Scripture says all have fallen short of the glory of God. That means that you, in your mothering, will sin and will come short of the glory of God. And you will come short of being after a mother after God's own heart. That's what Scripture says. So what do you do with that? The first thing you do is the same thing that everyone does when they examine their lives. And when they find that they are lacking, they go to God. You confess your sins. You confess your shortcomings. You confess where you are unruly. Remember the three categories? Some of those kids are unruly. We are unruly. And we go to God and we confess this unruliness. And we ask Him for His forgiveness. In that fearful category, we let him know where we're afraid. We let him know where we're anxious. We let him know where we have no confidence at all. And we ask him to comfort us, to give us peace, 
to give us the courage to do what we need to do, knowing that He will be with you. Because He says to those who are fearful, a bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not put out. So we ask Him to help us in our weakness. Some of us are weak because we need to grow stronger. Some of us are weak, and we always will be weak. We need to ask God for His strength. We need to go to God for His strength. Because God says to you, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. So like Paul, we'll be able to boast all the more gladly of our weaknesses because the power of Christ will then rest upon us. And it's Christ's power that you want in those times of weakness. We want to be strong, but we're not strong enough. It's Christ's power that's the only thing strong enough. So we go to God for His strength. It is His design. God never, God never expects perfection. He wants faith. God never expects strength. He wants dependence on Him. He wants your heart to rely on Him. He wants a mother whose heart is after God. Because He does the work of saving. He does the work of sanctifying. And He gives you this power and this weakness as you ask for Him. So go to God with your heart. Give it to Him as you are. Humble, broken, weak, unruly, disobedient, rebellious, whatever it is, go to God in that state. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to change yourself. Ask Him to fill your heart with His Spirit. The next thing you do after going to God is go to your children. If there's things that you need to confess to your child, confess them to them. Let them know. We have this idea that if we confess our sins to our children, that we become these weak parents who the children then trample over and and disrespect. But it's the opposite, because this is God's law. This is God's world. This is God's life. He teaches us to do this, to confess our sins. And the child doesn't do that, because it's God's way to do it. And you know what? They need to learn to do that themselves. They need to learn to humble themselves and to confess their sins, and to go before God. And as they offend other people, they need to learn what it means to confess to other people, to humble themselves, to ask others for their forgiveness. So be honest with them. And love them. Right? Love covers a multitude of sins. If I know someone loves me, truly loves me, wants my own good, I'm much more apt to forgive them. And go to others for help. Go to the body. Cry on their shoulder. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them for counsel. Ask them for wisdom. Ask them for the help. We are a body and we need to understand this. God has called us to help each other. We are not to go through this alone. But if no one knows your need, how can they help you? So you need to ask others. Right? God never asks for perfection. He wants faith. God never expects strength. He wants dependence. What God wants is your heart. God wants a mother after His own heart. He wants mothers who go to Him in the morning and put their day and their lives 
into his hands, who go to him throughout the day, in the middle of the day, and ask for his strength, ask for his patience, ask for his wisdom, who fall into his arms after a long day and thank him for his kindness and for him being there and for him being strong while they are weak and ask them to bless their children. That's what it means to be a mother after God's own heart. Evening comes. Night starts to fall. The mom with the kids and the plants, the dirt and the dog and the white carpeting, they're all sitting on the floor in a little spot of gray carpeting. And they play a game. And way up high on the hutch, overlooking them, are those newly, newly repotted plants. And after this, she goes to bed and she falls asleep, thanking God for him being her strength and for her joy when she couldn't do it on her own. And God smiles at her. He says, this is a mother after my own heart. And that mom and the angry teen down in the greenhouse have a moment of peace. And her son actually smiles at her and looks in her eyes, and they share a laugh. And they both realize in this one moment that they do love each other, despite how hard things can be. And there's this glimmer of hope that things can be better. And then she goes off, and she falls asleep, thanking God for him being her strength and her joy when she couldn't do it herself. And God smiles at her. And God says, this is a mother after my own heart. And that single mom in the house at the end of the street, at the end of the day, at the end of her strength, she plops down on the couch. And her youngest one jumps onto her lap. And he says, I love you, Mommy. Can you read a story? And instantly, her tired heart melts. She pulls the child in with a big hug. And the couch is suddenly filled with kids and with dolls and with happiness. After reading the story, she closes the book and she hugs and she kisses each pajama-footed kid. And she prays with each one of them. And then she falls asleep, thanking God for Him being her strength and her joy when she couldn't do it herself. And God smiles at her, and God says, this is a mother after my own heart. The band can come up as we close in prayer. Father God, we come before you. Lord, we just thank you. Lord, I thank you for the mothers in our lives, Lord, the ones who have made impacts in our life, Lord. We thank you so much that a mother is made in your image. Lord, to see a mother is to see you. To see a mother's kindness is to see your kindness. To see a mother's gentleness is to see your gentleness. To see a mother's love is to see your love. To see a mother's patience is to see your patience, Lord. And I just thank you for that. Lord, I just pray to all the mothers who are here today, Lord, who don't feel like they're a mother after your own heart. Lord, I pray that you will come to them, Lord. I pray that You will reveal Yourself to them in a special way, that Your Holy Spirit might fall on them. Lord, if there is sin in their lives, Lord, let them see it, that they might confess their sin so that they might know what it means to be restored. 
so that they might know what it means to be forgiven, so that they might know once more what Your love feels like, Lord, and just be with them. And Lord, I just pray uh, as these mothers just try, Lord, to do the things that You've asked them to do, Lord, that You will strengthen them and that You will encourage them, Lord. Encourage them with the unruly child, Lord, so they may warn and discipline, that that child might confess and come back to You, Lord. I pray for the ones... Uh, whose children are faint-hearted, Lord, who are nervous, who are anxious, Lord, whether it's temporary or, or even if it appears to be a permanent situation, Lord, be with them. Give them patience. Give them encouragement. Give them love. Let them uh, just see this child, Lord, and just encourage and build up, Lord. And I pray for those, Lord, who are weak, Lord. Once again, it's temporary, it's permanent, Lord, but those children are weak. They don't need harsh words, no matter what the intention are, Lord. But they need help. And so let those mothers help them. Let us come together as a body, Lord, and help each other. Lord, when we put all these three things together, Lord, we see ourselves. So Lord, help us as we help our children. Sanctify us as we sanctify our children, Lord. Let us be holy as You make our children holy as well, Lord. And once more, Lord, I just thank You now just for Your love your patience, your comfort, your kindness, your gentleness, Lord. How You were like a mother who comforts His children with us, Lord. I thank You now in Your precious and Your holy name. Amen. As we close with because of Your love, I was thinking about the, the dinner. Are we need our Mother's Day dinner?